Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to MRI Cast. We're glad that you decided to join us for whatever reason. We're, we're just tickled to death. Joining me today on this podcast is Kristen Harrington. Hello, Kristen. Well, hello, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today. I'll introduce Howard. We have... Well, why don't you do that? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, I want to introduce Dr. Howard Raleigh. And um, Bill and I, even though we're all in different locations, we feel um, very, very fortunate to have you joining us today. Well, it's probably the you. nicest introduction you've ever gotten. Yeah, I'm wondering what you're going to pull next. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I was. I actually had something written down, but I decided not to say it. Um, but, you know, we'll move on. We'll leave that to everyone's imagination. Fair enough. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so our topic today is going to be... Uh, Maybe a little bit start, maybe go a little bit wide range here or something, but we're going to, I guess the overall topic would be MR safety screening, patient screening. And we'll talk about non patient screening as well because we, uh, in fact, Chris and I had a, did an MRI safety officer course uh, this past week, and we had some interesting inputs from some of the attendees. So the first thing, I guess I'll just go ahead and start off, and then we'll we'll kind of go around the table here. Uh, when when I think of overall screening processes, what I'd like to see is number one, when the patient is called by the facility uh, before they come in, and typically that's a good idea, I think, to make sure see if they've got any implants or devices that need to be researched, but uh, also to tell the patient several things. Number one, don't wear any jewelry leave your jewelry at home. And number two, let them know they will be changing clothes. And we'll, you know, I'm sure talk about some of these things as we go through. And then when they get to the facility, uh, they uh, need to be MR safety screened. The ACR says at least minimum of two times, and at least one of them should be level two personnel and should be verbal and interactive, which means look at them, talk to them. Interestingly enough, back in the 80s, when we started working in MRI, late 80s, uh, we didn't refer to it as a safety screening or screening. We referred to it as interviewing the patient. And I think that's what it needs to be, an interactive uh, interactive screening. You know, one thing I, I was telling when I was speaking, um, doing the safety portion, uh, the screening portion, of the course um, this week was I told them it's it's really also about having a conversation with them and and not just to try and trigger memories, you know, of, of things they may have had done in the past, but also it creates a rapport with, with the patient, you know, let them, you know, ask questions at that time. So I say it's a conversation as well. It's not just interviewing. We've got to go through this form thoroughly, but we also need to create that rapport. Well, I think that can help put, put patients at ease, you know, with terms of anxiety or something like that. Uh, because there have been situations that I've heard of where 
a doctor told someone, do not tell them that you have a pacemaker because they will not scan you. This did not personally happen to me, but oh you, you've heard this as well. Right. Yes. Very, very similar things. Uh, you, you know, it's, it, it, you really do have to, again, going back to what I was saying about <clears throat> being the tech being the one to, that's, interviews the patients when it scans them uh to help alleviate that uh that anxiety how are you know any thoughts on on that well ex absolutely i think uh you've hit some really important points as usual and you know what could be more important in mri than safety because there is the potential there every minute if you know somebody lets down their guard or we're not thorough we could literally kill somebody and so having safety as the top line uh, effort for your site is really important. You know, and it, actually at our place, it begins with the hospital policy that radiology is in charge. And that means that even if the orthopod or the neurosurgeon is jumping up and down and yelling at our tech to put the patient in, no way. They, they have the authority and specific direction to only listen uh, to the radiology staff and screeners and, and personnel. Um, and I think that's a point that's sometimes missed, you know, um, that you have to have top level support for these programs. And then you have to have it organized. And, and you know, we all forget things. So, you know, the uh, employees alike with the patients do need to be screened. We do that at least once a year with a test and filling out our employee uh, screening forms so that we're safe to enter uh, the magnet area. Um, these are really critical things. And the, the biggest changes I think we've most of us have seen in the last, say, five years or so are the more widely adopted online screening forms. And they're sort of both a blessing and a curse. I mean, you, you get them out in advance for outpatients. Uh, you can provide them, get them filled out. But um, one of the problems is uh, who's filling it out and how accurate is that? And if it's, you know, an emergency case down in the emergency department and a nurse is filling it out and maybe the patient's even unconscious and you get that form and it's marked all no's, that's really uh, misleading. On the other hand, if you've, you've got the patient identified and you've got their prior uh, uh, screening forms and we keep a list in our electronic health record of implants and so forth, and you can update that, you can add implants, remove implants, you've at least got belt and suspenders. But the piece of twine that holds everything up is ultimately the tech who does that interview and is standing between the patient and the magnet room ultimately. And believe me, we really appreciate uh, that, that function and, and keeping people safe really rests uh, with the technologist who's who's scanning the patient ultimately. We actually do have an online form at our facility as well. And um, I would say it's a low percentage of people that actually do fill that out. And I never even, they, they usually 100% of the time have to tell me, well, I filled one out online. And so then I go and print it. But they've already got the paper. You know, I said, well, just go ahead and start filling that one out because it's actually not as thorough. And I don't know why, but I just don't, I, it's just, I don't know why it's not as thorough. I'm not the boss there. I'm not the one that put it in there. Um, we have great MR safety officer over things. I just, it's just not as thorough. It's a one page versus a two page. And to me, there's things that are missing. So the, the written form is different than the online form? It is. It is. 
That's odd. It is very odd. Yeah. But once again, um, I'm PRN um, at a pediatric facility, and they could have changed because I haven't worked in five months because I'm still stuck in a wheelchair, which is highly fairs. I broke my <laughs> oh, just so people know, build it and do it. Howard didn't do it. Um, I actually um, I did it to myself, and uh, I uh, I haven't been able to work at the the children's facility at all. Um, and I had a I had a little uh, a little accident with a horse. So <laughs> anyway, horsing around. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> oh my God! Did did you just say horsing around? Yes, I did. Okay, that that was so appropriate. Um, but yes, they they may have changed it in the last five months, but for over a year it it remained that way. And you know, I always tell them I, I think they should be the same. And then some parents are not super happy; they have to fill out another one. But just because it's not as thorough, I I just. I, li- I like the other one. And, you know, I just, and I, I think that's great um, that they do have them. I just think it needs to be more accurate. And then sometimes I think some texts rely on it a little too much. And again, Howard, you, you brought up a fantastic point. I make my kids fill out everything. I'm like, here, do this, do that. You know, and who knows if it was a, who, who did that screening form online? Who knows? Right. And even the docs who order the scans are supposed to answer some basic, you know, top level uh, MRI safety uh, things like pacemakers. And (laughs) hopefully they don't do such an egregious statement as don't tell them you have a pacemaker. But (laughs) I think people just don't know. Everybody's in a hurry. And it ultimately comes down to that that multiple stop check, uh, ultimately with looking at them and talking to them and asking about their surgeries and and uh and so forth i think Kristen, you had a nice way of putting that kind of the summary question what do you ask patients when you screen them uh, well we ask them is there anything on you or in you that you weren't born with um yeah, i think that, that actually sums it up <laughs> it, well and you know what i am a poor historian about all my surgeries i really am because i've had neck surgery I've had three surgeries with my broken leg so far. I've had so many different things through the years. I can't even remember what I've had done that might be important. I, I mean, I'm, I'm all good, guys. I'm, I'm MR conditional now with all this metal in my leg, but um, I, um, I, I'm a bad person as far as remembering, and I think that's a great trigger. And Bill says it, he, and we do courses as well. But we actually learned it from another tech. We learn so much when we do these courses, and and then another uh, a gentleman that we work a lot with, um, he uh, he's also on the American Board of MR Safety with Bill and I. He actually has that in each ch- patient changing room. Now we're talking well over two hundred sites that he's that he's over. Um, each changing room has something, and it's in bold print. It has a really great explanation of why. But then on there it says, "Is there anything on you or in you that you were not born with?" One of the things that I, you know, stand with talking about the written versus electronic form, I'm still, a, now I don't like a lot of paperwork. I try to do everything, you know, from my home office business standpoint as, as, as electronic as possible. But I still like the written uh, MR safety screening form. I think that's because um, I, I see a lot of problems with the, with the online form. I think it should be in writing and then you can scan it into your, your medical record. 
the big problem I see, and I think Kristen might have, maybe Howard alluded to it, somebody did, um, that we have seen in some in many sites that we've consulted with on, on MR safety audits where the technologists begin to rely too much on somebody else to fill that form out. Um, one of the clients we worked with when we initially started working with them, uh, they were really relying on the ER, the ICU, any, any nursing had to fill out that screening form. And then the problem is you, the techs get in the habit of just kind of skimming over it and making sure nothing sticks out at them. I, I have to and, add this. And at this facility, we always ask them, you know, what do you see as your biggest obstacle? You know, how can we, you know, try and address, make sure we address everything while we're here. And um, they said, you really need to train the hospital nurses on how to screen appropriately. That's what they yeah, told and, us. They, and, you know, my response was, that's not their job. It's not. Uh, it's not, you know, that's that's the MRI person's uh, personnel's job. And so, you know, that's that's what we saw as a problem. And, and in fact, they had missed things like uh, uh, insulin, insulin pumps, pump. hearing aids. Someone had tra uh, traction devices on. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just that you, you get reliant on somebody else doing it. And um, I know they believe it speeds it up sometimes. And, and maybe that does help. But that even if they do fill it out, uh, it still needs to be gone over point by point with the patient verbally and interactive by a technologist preferably the one doing the scan. It's especially important, I think, when, you know, just to give an example, we've introduced these fast stroke protocols, and we're, we're doing like several a day now uh, in, the, in the system, and they're almost all ordered from the emergency department. And by definition, they're pretty much time-pressured things. So, um, you know, I, I was talking to one of my techs yesterday about this, and I said, so how do you handle that sort of form of screening? And she said, well, of course, we get the order and immediately the uh, the ED nurse who's taking care of the patient is tasked with doing the screening. But we don't at all stop there. She said, as soon as we know that we're getting them on the schedule, we pull up their electronic health record. We look at their chest X-ray and their head CT ourselves if it's available. And, you know, if the patient's unable to give a history and they don't have family there, you immediately put in the orders for, you know, plain film examination of the head, chest, and abdomen just to hit the big things so that you can feel more reassured. And at the same time, they're doing the quick chart review. Uh, they go to that section that has the implants listed if it's a known and identified patient uh, because she says you never trust the uh, the screening form that comes up. Uh, you know, no, no offense to anyone, but they, they may just not have the information and they check off a bunch of no's to get things moving and uh, getting things moving could kill that patient if, if something is missed. Bill, will you um, tell that story? Our good friend, uh, I won't say where he's from, but um, Ray's story about the ER and the screening form. Oh yeah. So uh, in fact, I was just going to mention something like that. There's a written screening form from the ER and uh, the nursing personnel filled it out in the ER and they draw. They drew straight lines, you know, down the no part. Well, they started and, with X's, and then about halfway down on yeah. the left hand side, they started drawing a straight line. Yeah. Then they decided that was taking too much time, and they went with a straight line. And uh, 
you know, Mark No to, uh, in, in particular, metal in the eye. Have you ever been hit in the eye with any metal? I forget how it's worded. Anyway, same patient, uh, some few weeks later, something like that, uh, same emergency room. I uh, don't know if it's a different person this time or whatever, but this time when the form came across, he was positive for having you know, been exposed to metal in the eye and whether he, he likely probably didn't have anything in there. Cause that's usually a very low probability. But the point is, uh, you know, this was not done by, uh, you know, the text, this was done, you know, in the ER. And I, again, two things, I would rather do it myself and certainly go through it interactively and, we don't like straight lines. In fact, one of the things when we do a uh, when we do a side audit, so I guess I'm giving away secrets. So one of the things that we'll do, first off, we want to see if anybody if, if they'll screen us, and surprisingly, you know, quite a few have not screened us. And then when they do screen us, excuse me, one of the things I like to do is draw straight lines to see if they say anything, and. Um, you know, typically they don't necessarily with the straight lines. And that's, that's something I think you should avoid the straight line thing. If something's got straight lines on it, you throw it away and you start over. One facility had the joint commission come in and um, the person that was, um, that came to their department, they, they screened them, but the person um, there from the joint commission actually checked yes to aneurysm clips to make sure that they actually read the document and went through it. I don't know if you remember that site, Bill, but I found that yep. to be very interesting as well. Um, I think we should also talk, if you want to move into it, I think it's important to talk about um, looking at um, people that are, no, are non-MR personnel. So, and and how, how, how is that screening? How is that handled at all these facilities? Because we see it all over, all over the map as far as how it's handled. So, Howard, you said at your facility, uh, you screen non-MR personnel uh, at least annually. Let's 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 talk about maybe uh, somebody. Let's first talk about the people. Well, it really doesn't matter whether they're down there very much or not. Uh, everybody needs to be screened. Has to have a screening form uh, before, by, according to the ACR, before they come into. Um, into zone three. So there's two ways to handle this. One way, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing is that they make any, every non-MRI personnel fill out a form every time they come down. And, um, you know, that can get a little cumbersome or, you know, problematic, I guess, for workflow and stuff. Another way that people do it is they uh, have them fill out a screening form uh, once and then uh, when they come back down, they just check to make sure nothing has changed. And then they just do a new screening form annually. Now, before I forget it and then get other people's thoughts on this, one of the things that we saw at one of the facilities uh, is, is a really good idea. I've seen several variations of this. One organization had a badge buddy, this little thing that hung on the back of your badge that said MRI cleared. And so that way, when this non-MRI person, the nurse or whoever, came into MRI, the text could immediately tell that they had been screened. Um, other people have put stickers on it, but then stickers are widely used for a lot of other things. The best one that we have heard of 
yet, and I still think this is the best way to do it, is a zip tie. And so what you do is you get colored zip ties. And so let's say the color of this year is yellow. And so when somebody fills out uh, a screening form and they're, they're good to go, they clip a little, just put a little yellow zip tie on their, on their badge, name badge. And that way, when, again, they come back, the tech sees they got the yellow zip tie, they know they're current in their screening, and they can just simply say, now, has anything changed with regard to your screening form since you were down here before? And then next year, when next year rolls around, let's say the next year, 23 is going to be green. So then somebody comes in with a yellow zip tie, you go, oh, I need a new screening form on you. And you fill out a screening form, give them a green zip, take the yellow one off, give them a green one. Uh, that way, again, the technologists can quickly recognize that they have uh, a current screening form on file. Uh, Howard, what do you think of that idea? Well, it's better than what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say if they try to go in and they're not cleared, you're going to zip tie them to a cabinet or something. (laughs) So they can't Tether them to the wall. (laughs) Tether them to the wall. I I like that idea. You know, we've got the sticker approach, which isn't uh, all the best, but you know, we do make every employee uh, go through a safety and infection control course. And I know how we all like doing those courses every year, but in there is a, an important key module in uh, MR safety. And so that requalifies the general populace of people working at the hospital uh, for, for safety. Uh, but you have lots of other people, especially when you think about folks who are with uh, uh, prisoners and so forth, you know, who come in and you've always got to have your, your, your antenna up um, for who's getting anywhere near uh, the control room. I've seen a lot of people, uh, in fact, we, we saw this at one of our side audits where a nurse uh, came in to just, I think she was going to administer a drug or something like that to the patient. And so the, the technologist, you know, of course, made take everything out of their pockets and then said something like, so you don't have a pacemaker aneurysm clip or anything like that, do you? And they said no. And they said, okay. And basically just let them go on in, but had nothing in writing. And the problem with that is that, for example, if a, if a female nurse uh, came down to MRI and, uh, you know, I just verbally screened her and she's thinking, okay, well, I've had a bilateral mastectomy and she's thinking, okay, I got these t- tissue expanders, but it's none of his business. And besides, I'm not going in when the magnet's on, you know, that kind of thought process. And if I don't have anything in writing, that's, you know, Basically, if it's not if it's not documented, it didn't happen, and uh, so I, I think, believe it or not, you'd see that more times than not when people aren't putting this in writing, and I think that's I think it's critical to have a written screening form on file for all these people. I, I went we went we went to one site, and um, I I typically dress fares free just so we can check out the FMD. There's certain things and Bill always has like a buckle or zipper, whatever he wears. That's, that's got some sort of quality that is picked up by the FMD. So I typically go in everywhere and I just go fares free. And I was walking around talking to some floor nurses at one facility that we were at and a girl that had been there since she was a student and it was 20 plus years had never been screened she couldn't count how many times because there had been so many times that she had been to the MR department and she had an active implant. And she said, well, nothing's ever happened. I said, yeah, but you, you can't, you can't go back in there again. 
She goes, I didn't know that. They've never screened me. And so you have to screen them and you have to. The other thing, you know, Howard, you're saying they, you know, they do the screening forms. We do them annually. One thing that ours says for internal staff, I've seen this at other facilities um, on the, the screening forms. We know according to the ACR manual and MR safety, it says, it says that, you know, they need to be done on everyone going in, but in they're essentially going to be identical for, you know, patients versus non-patients, just less clinical. But um, I think that also on the, the hospital staff, it should say, um, if anything changes, you are required, and they're going to sign this, right? If anything changes, um, the next time that you're coming to MRI, you must alert the MR personnel or level two MR technologist. Um, I think that that should be on the form as well, just so they're aware, oh, if anything changes, you know, it's not just a piece of paper that you're signing. They, they need to take it extremely seriously. Oh, I agree with that. And it reminded me of a question, which is, um, you know, are the ferromagnetic detectors something that are helpful or potentially harmful? Because do people rely on them too much to the point where they're not maybe screening? Uh, is it better to have that full stop and, you know, just a, a caution belt like you see that's retractable at the airport <laughs> lines? You know, what I... You know, we we don't have the metal detector uh, approach at our place, but I've I've wondered what the experience is, and you two probably know much more about that at different sites. We we do definitely. I I will tell you this: we have um, okay, so we have a single pillar. We do thorough screening, a verbal and interactive. And then uh, we, I call it spin and win, a single pillar. It is located in zone two. And then we also have, it's, it's owned by COP now, but it was Mednovis, the, green, the um, gray handheld. It's now white, same technology. And that um, is really good for bobby pins, for, you know, things that are really close to the head, um, close to the body that you might have not picked up. So we do one or the other with those. And the reason we have a really good thing with the uh, with the um, handheld is it's great for pediatrics for very small small babies. So that's why we have that. And then we have what Bill and I call bus stops, um, big ugly suckers, and those are next to the door, and it's going to catch something. Um, we have the the technologist lead um, the patient into the room. It, and the, the tech needs to be ferris free, so nothing alarms, so not, no alarm fatigue whatsoever. And then they lead the patient in, and if something goes off, then something has been missed. And then I got asked this the other day when I was going through FMD. Well, if we have to pick, which one do we get? And I always say, you know what? Talk to the different vendors because it just depends on where you want to increase your risk. The FMD is to be used in conjunction with thorough screening, in my mind, you would never use FMD without a thorough screening. Bill, what do you think? And can we define FMD in case people don't know? I think we know what it is, but... <laughs> oh, ferromagnet <laughs> ferromagnetic detection. And um, there are some companies out there, I know that there's one, they have four documented papers that are really a good read that, um, and they're easy to find on their webpage. 
that actually they can pick up some implants and devices and, and with a high with a high sensitivity pretty much and inside the body. Yeah. The uh some of these uh one company in particular, an offshoot of their business, a side part of their business, is that they install variations essentially of these single pillar systems uh in prison systems. And a lot of hospital ERs are now starting to get them to uh, clear for handguns. And then um, for prison systems, for smuggling cell phones, uh, I'll let you guess what the preferred method for smuggling a cell phone into prison is. Uh, you know, Howard, any no, guesses don't there? Go, don't go there, Bill. No, no, I'm <laughs> it just, gives a new it, meaning to butt dialing, as I think it's just... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, That's I, for I, sure. I threw it out there. I'm sorry. I apologize. That'll be the, the <laughs> most inappropriate thing that I'll say the entire podcast. Can we just say that? No. Well, Bill, no, Bill saddled you with a terrible pun earlier about horses, so it's only <laughs> oh, yeah. appropriate. He saddled me, Howard, <laughs> Doctor Raleigh. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Um, he, he did saddle me with Alan. Okay. <laughs> All right. Too much well, time. the and actually to to Howard's question, um, I I find that the problem with ferromagnetic detection is not that the techs begin to rely on it too much, and not um, you know do thorough screening. I I've, I don't know that I've ever run across that. Well, to Kristen's point, what we run across is particularly when you're when you're talking about the 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 ferromagnetic detection devices are the, the units that are positioned at the scan room door, at or within the scan room door. And that's why Kristen made the point of the staff dressing ferrous free. So what happens is, and this is, this is what I see as the biggest problem with these, is how they're used. And so if the site doesn't, if the, if the techs don't dress ferrous free, then they go off all the time. Uh, and when they go off all the time, people stop paying attention to them. I've even been to sites where they turn them off. So basically, they got them on the wall. They've checked a box. They're just not using it because it goes off. I'll ask in, a, in presentations, I'll ask, so, you know, how many of you have them? A bunch of people raise their hand. I go, how many of you think they don't work? A lot of people raise their hand. I go, what do you mean? They don't go off? They go, no, they go off all the time. I go, well, they are working. Okay, it's it's just you're not using it appropriately, and so uh, to make them work appropriately, you have to dress Ferris free. There's uh, there's several uh, facilities nationwide that have implemented, especially in pediatrics facilities, but it should be in any facility, but a Ferris free in, environment. And uh, they uh, one place in Denver, uh, Denver Children's put a plug for them. I forget the last, one of the last presentations I saw on them, Kristen, maybe you can remember the number of days, but it's like 200. It's over 300 because I I sent, I sent um, the rep um, a text and I was, I said, you know, what number are they at? And it it was well over 300. It was well over 300. So um, since the, an alarm, what Bill's saying here is since an alarm since an alarm had gone off. Now, an, un- an unintended alarm. Now, like there, there are things that you would pass through the door with that's going to set the alarm off. But, but in terms of unintended alarms, it would have been well over 300 days. 
and and that just shows that they are in fact working. So if you think about it, if you look at what their risk would be for something getting into that room, it would be ex- you know extremely low because when that alarm goes off, people notice it. Yeah, people are going to pay attention. Um, I, I I don't I don't even know why I'm, I'm digressing. I'm I'm taking a, a ninety degree turn here. Um, you know I. I'm going to talk about the aura ring bill. Um, okay. You know, when we, we call patients, okay, first of all, I should say this. We call patients, um, a technologist calls them. A, a, a confirmation of the appointment is done and maybe four things are asked by by scheduling. But an MR level two trained technologist, because there's no MR tech aides, which I think they could do this very well if they're level two trained, actually calls and asks to speak to the parent of, you know, the child, they say their first name, and there is a script, and it's left on a voicemail. This is to the parents of you know such and such, you know, and they literally say they will be changing. They this will will be happening, and they go pretty much. It is very thorough, and they they call them about two days out, and whoever is free, I don't know of any one of our facilities that does not practice that at all. And I think that is a standard of care that we have, that a level two person takes care of that. And I think that's very much a best practice. I will say in pediatrics, rarely do they have um, implants and devices, but they do. I mean, it definitely is is out there. Rarely do they have um, complicated implants and devices. A lot of shunts, things come through, but um, definitely um, it's gone through very thoroughly. Keeping that in mind, if you guys would look at in the ACR manual under um, screening, there's been an addition with the 2020 um, manual that came out that actually under pediatrics, it says an additional screening needs to be done on adolescents in the absence of their parent or guardian. I don't I don't know. I, I know Bill. He, he knows about it. He's read it. Howard, you probably have seen it. It's not practiced. And I will tell you, we definitely, we've done it since way before that it was in the ACR. You can tell a 16-year-old that comes in, their parents got to sign the document. We can kind of tell that some of these kids are not going to be telling all the information of all the different things that they have on their body. And um, we make sure to, um, to have that private conversation with them. And your facility would need to decide, you know, what are the qualifiers? You know, what what do we consider? Is this going to be everyone over the age of 14? Or is it going to be if we notice these differences? It needs to be in there in some fashion because it doesn't define at what age, understandably, in the ACR manual. But it's clear that with pediatric patients, I mean, come on, Howard, Dr. Howard Raleigh, Dr. Um, Bill, um, did you truly um, tell your parents everything when you were 16? Come on, let's just let it out there. Of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, was, I was pretty boring as a, as a teenager, quite um, honestly. I, I would say that I probably, I, I fall a little bit closer to Howard on that one. And, and so <laughs> just a little bit. I mean, I'm pretty boring. Um but I, but I do you're talking about piercings and rings that might be in places that aren't visible and things like that. Yeah, that, you know, or tattoos or something like that, which is not a big deal. But I mean, still kind of like to know about it. I mean, 
at Howard at your place, do they, do they do that? Do they make a point to talk to a, a adolescent, you know, or somebody teenager, uh, outside the presence of a parent? Yep. Uh, we do try to do that. And, you know, it's the same thing with a clinic visit too. My wife's a pediatric oncologist. She always uh, asks the parents to excuse themselves so that she can talk to the patients. And I think that's pretty standard, good clinical practice for adolescent patients in general. And, um, you know, it, it again goes back to developing trust before they ever get in the magnet and you're probably going to get a better exam. Um, you know, one thing with pediatric screening that I don't think we do perfectly, and I wonder if you have a solution for it, it's sort of indirectly safety related is, uh, you know, not all screening asks about orthodontic hardware braces. Um, and although you can usually work your way around the braces, sometimes if they have some kind of big spreader bar or something in there, it's just going to wipe out a brain exam. And, um, you know, I think it's particularly important if a, a, a child or adolescent is, is uh, slated for sedation or anesthesia for a long exam, or maybe they're not cooperative. I think you've got to know that they have braces in advance because I, I've had to at least talk to parents and say, look, you know, I know you don't want to have the orthodontist remove that. It's going to cost a bunch of money. It's going to be inconvenient. But I just want you to know, you know, we're putting them under anesthesia for this. It has its own risks. I'm worried about not getting the information I need. So although it's safe for braces to go in, uh, it does create this safety issue that we might not be able to get the best images. Let's say if it's a anterior skull base lesion or something like that. So I don't know if you have a system that helps to reliably identify braces uh, in, in pe it, not only kids, but adults going in? Yeah, I think definitely for pediatrics, because it's more common, um, it's a question that we ask up front. Um, we obviously, we're a big neuro facility, so a lot of brain tumors. And um, obviously we have special sequences that we run if they do keep based upon where the mass is or what's going on, if they do keep the braces on. But um, Howard, I'll tell you this. I've never heard of a um, dentist, orthodontist, that has not taken them off and put them back on for free, honestly, if they need an MRI exam. Um, palate expanders, we know that we have to be very careful with those. Um, you know, we do scan them, but, um, you know, those are we take into consideration as well. But I, honestly, I've never had anyone. They just they'll tell us, and I've asked once someone one time. And they're like, no, they didn't charge a dime. And then I've heard from other people, no, they don't charge them at all if they have to have an MRI, and we know ahead of time. So I, I think that's that's Southern hospitality at its finest. Well, we could send our patients down to your orthodontist, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in free. the South, we actually have more than one, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's something that a lot of people really haven't thought of is, is you know, you've got to think of artifacts uh, when you think of safety, but it's because it does, in fact, limit the quality of the exam. Uh, you have uh, the, to Howard's point, you have the risk associated with anesthesia or sedation. And if you're going to give contrast media, 
then, you know, you, you give patients contrast media, there's a very small risk of uh, adverse events, uh, but it's still a very real risk nonetheless. And if you give the patient the gadolinium and you don't get a diagnostic exam, then you've exposed that patient to an unnecessary risk. And I think finding out up front what all people have and uh, discussing the, you know, again, I think the only, I don't have an answer for it other than to, um, you know, know about it up front. And it may require, uh, you know, the patient coming in, the radiologist taking a look at it and go, you know, that's a pretty good bit of dental work there. And I, you know, I think it probably needs to come out given given what we're going to be looking for, or what we're going to be doing. Um, on that topic of, of gadolinium, from, a, from an adverse event standpoint, Howard sent me a paper <clears throat> that I actually had, for some reason, I ran across it uh, the, other, the other week. And uh, it was uh, allergic-like, this is the title of it, <clears throat> allergic-like hypersensitivity reactions to gadolinium-based contrast agents, an eight-year cohort study of 154,539 patients. So this is uh, that number of people, patients over an eight-year uh, study. And uh, basically, you know, what they were looking at uh, are patients who had experienced uh, uh, an allergic-like reaction. They did not they did not count physiologic reactions, which would be nausea, flushing, headache, vasovagal, that sort of stuff. That was excluded. This was only um, the allergic-type reactions. And what they looked at were the number of people that had had uh, uh, patients who were exposed to iodinated contrast media, patients that were exposed to gadolinium agents. They looked at any cross kind of a relationship. In other words, they had a they had an adverse event to gadolinium, but not iodine, or they had an adverse event to iodine, but not gadolinium, or they had one to both. And they were really, the purpose was just to kind of see, well, if they've had an adverse reaction in the past, then you know, number one, what's the probability that they would have another one? And was, is there anything you can do to manage that and possibly, possibly reduce it? Um, Howard, what were your takeaways on that? Uh, anything in particular out of that article that you found interesting? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we, it, it just underlines the point that we always have to be ready, even, um, and maybe especially if they have had, haven't had contrast before, the rate of uh, serious reactions are way less than 1%. So uh, it's you're statistically fine, but if you're scanning thousands of patients a year, you're going to see reactions. And so this paper gives us a perspective on uh, the use of uh, either pre-medication or changing agents if there's been a known reaction to one in the past. And it looked like the the relative benefit was was greater by changing agents than pre medication, although both uh, did improve uh, and lessen uh, the rate of allergic like reactions. Um, you know, I think this is it's a controversial thing, and at least the last time I checked, uh, uh, a lot of the European sites don't pre treat uh, even in the face of prior contrast reaction. But you know, it's 
I think, pretty much standard of care in the U.S. to pretreat with oral uh, um, medrol methylprednisolone 12 and two hours before the injection, and then uh, IM or oral uh, Benadryl before the exam, about an hour before the exam. And that, that's for a routine outpatient sort of reaction prophylaxis. And I don't know whether it really works or not, but it, I think it makes everybody feel better, including the techs and the patients. And it's so routine. You know, it's and the papers like this say it does reduce the, the rate of uh, reactions. Um, the problem is, what if you've got an ED patient that you really need one on uh, and they've had a bad reaction that's been documented? The fastest we've seen is a four or five hour preparation uh, that includes uh, intravenous hydrocortisone and intravenous uh, Benadryl. Uh, the, the hydrocortisone is given five and one hour before the contrast injection and the Benadryl an hour before. Um, so there are ways to get it done pretty fast. But like all other situations with MR safety, if you can't do it safely and can't follow your protocol, there's usually a way to answer the question You know, uh, with CT or some other means. The uh, just to give those listeners some perspective on the the effect of this, what they did uh, the recurrent rate according to them the recurrent rate highest at thirty one percent, which was in patients who had received neither intervention, uh, meaning okay, so there were two things they were either going to switch them to a different agent. Uh, and or give them pre-medication. So if they didn't do either of those, the recurrent rate was around 31%. So in other words, if a patient has had an adverse event before, there were going to be about 31% uh, reoccurrence rate. And patients who both switched to a different gadolinium agent and received pre-medication, that group had a recurrence rate of 5%. Still had them, but it was obviously much lower than 31% reoccurrence. Now, what's interesting is in the remainder, who patients who just received pre-medication, if, if all they did was get pre-medicated, got the same agent that they had had before, the recurrent rate was 19%. If, however, they switched to a different agent, and that's all they did, the recurrent rate was 6%. So, if they, if they switched agents, it was 6%. If I read this correctly, if they switched agents, it was 6% reoccurrence. And if they added pre-medication, 5%. So the pre-medication only dropped it, assuming you switched agents. Now, if you just pre-medicated them, I think, it, I, think I forget what I said, it, it dropped it to. Uh, but if, if you did both switching to GAD and gave pre-medication and only dropped it another percentage point. So I, you know, my take home from this and when I was talking to a client the other week, I said, you know, I think it's a good idea to have uh, a second agent on the shelf. And in fact, general, I don't think it's a bad idea to have uh, two types of agents to pick from. For example, um, you can have the linear agent, uh, multi-hance protein interacting agent, higher relaxivity, uh, and that can be very useful in, in minimizing the dose to people if, in, you know, in pediatrics. It can be useful in a lot of things, the higher relaxivity part of it. And then 
a lot of people want to have like a macrocyclic, for example, Prohance. Okay, that's, you know, so there you've got two agents on the shelf that you can pick from for a variety of reasons. One would be better than another one, depending on the patient and what you're doing. But that, that gives you the ability to, when a patient comes in and they say, well, I've had this adverse event. Oh, well, we'll give you a different agent. And to Howard's point about premedication, I think psychologically there's something to be said for, well, we'll give you a different one this time. I, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, I think that is um, the best practice. And, you know, we talked about that paper and I, I think that it's it's pretty interesting um, looking at pre-medicating versus changing agents. And um, so I, I think there is definitely merit in that. I'm, I'm sure, Howard, you probably have something to say about that as well. Yeah. And, it, you know, it kind of goes back to um, n- not getting stuck in a rut and deciding, oh boy, you know, now we're going to have to change agents or premedicate. You know, maybe the question can actually be answered with a non-contrast exam that's you know juiced up with some additional different sequences to to try to answer the the relevant clinical question, and then you avoid it altogether. You know, so I think we we sometimes get get caught going down the path, you know, like the old milk uh, delivery horse. Sorry about that. Uh, who uh, even when the milkman dies on the wagon, it still runs the the run. You know, you guys are too young to remember that. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I know what you're talking about. But yeah, dang it, we want to we want to have this big picture where you have a, a toolbox of alternatives uh, to to either lessen the risk of contrast when it really really has to be given, or maybe think smarter and you know uh, if you can design a protocol that's going to answer that question just as well uh, with a non-contrast study. I think that is absolutely one of the best things that's been said all day. I do not, I, I, we do not, Bill can you know, correct me if I'm wrong, we do not ever hear someone say, well, you know, unless they've had like documented severious anaphylactoid, you know, something like that. Did um, you say severious? <laughs> I said she didn't say severious. She okay. did say it. I think she that's a good it. word. Go ahead, please. And I, and I can't. Uh, yeah, and I can't take that out. I mean, it was right there. You know, I can't edit that out. Uh, please, Kristen, write, go ahead. Severious. You know, severious. <laughs> you do realize I'm the only girl on this podcast, and I'm feeling slightly bullied right now. We we love you. <laughs> I'm really feeling it, Howard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, he's he's being severious. He, he really is being severious. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I don't think. And I was trying to compliment you, and then you collaborated <laughs> with William. Um, no, I think that um, people do not look to doing um, with you know an exam without contrast being administered. And trying to be very, um, very hooked on phonics in your language yeah. <laughs> i'm trying yeah. to be very hooked on phonics and phonetically whatever pronunciation um can i go back i, I said i was going to talk about the aura ring a lot of times um there's a ring well, actually what i was okay what i was going to do is ask each of us to kind of give a give a summary here if we're getting down to the end okay and so just to kind of give a summary or something else that you want to mention before we before we get out. So I'll go first since I just said that the, um, and especially since you two just, uh, I'm not even sure when I'll speak to y'all again after this situation. Um, <laughs> my feelings are, are super hurted. Um, mm. 
You, did you catch that I said that wrong? Yeah, too? I got that. Okay, yeah, yeah, great. I was yeah. going to bully you again. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, one of the things is many times we allow people to still keep on their wedding bands. Um, we don't really, you know, maybe they might feel slight vibrations from the time bearing gradient magnetic field, so on and so forth. We, you know, we tell them to take them off. I can tell you that um, my, my wedding ring doesn't come off very easily. Um, so I have something called the aura ring and it looks at my sleep pattern, my readiness, you know, my temperature, my variable on the heart rate. Um, overnight and it stays charged for like two or three weeks. If you looked at it, it looks like a wedding band on my finger. You, you cannot tell. Now there are no documented cases of it being catching fire. There's no documentation, doc, but it would definitely break it. There's no doubt about that. There's electronics. You can see them if you take the ring off. So I, I just think that we want to be extremely careful about the on you or in you and about these rings. People let rings pass through all the time um, you have got to, to make them remove everything. Um, there's smart bras out there. There's smart underwear. I promise you, I cannot make this stuff up. You have got to make these patients change completely. And the other thing you really need to be aware of is making sure you ask about these monitoring as far as I think there's something called Nulasta for cancer patients. And then there's these continuous glucose monitoring. And most facilities that we go to have not added that on there. And they say, well, we ask it, um, but you you really need to have it on the screening form. They used to be extremely expensive, the um, um, different types of glucose monitoring. And now they're affordable and people have them on and you want to have them take them off um, when they come in for the exam. And then they can put a new one on afterwards and that way it, it saves them the, the financial impact, but you've got to ask them about these things. And so that's a nut, that's a really important part about talking to these patients prior to them showing up for the exams. And that is something critical because you want to schedule appropriately with that. Um, and I think that would be, um, and the other thing is do not hand off and then I'll, I'll let you guys have your, your, your moment of glory. Um, if one tech scans a patient, there's been a, a, a report, um, that was in the FDA mall database, uh, a patient came in, they had acute encephalitis. Um, they had a CT done. They said, we need an MR, you know, all this was happening kind of quickly. They got the patient to MR and, um, the patient started vomiting, was feeling very ill. So they directed, admitted him. There was a shift change. Patient comes back down, they're feeling better. Patients put on the scanner because a new tech was there and they made the assumption that the when the patient was down there earlier, that they had been screened. Didn't look for the screening form. There wasn't one. And the patient was in the scanner being imaged and one of the techs looked at the different images from radiology that had been, that had been done that day and they noted a dual lead pacemaker. So make sure that each and every time that they come to the department, if they've come earlier, you still need to do that verbal and interactive with them. You don't know if it happened with the tech that was there earlier. If you've got a form sitting right there because you know they're coming back later, whoever is in that department needs to trust but verify. Trust but verify is what I would always say. And, and thank you guys for allowing me um, to be on uh, this podcast. Oh, no problem. I 
I just thought you were going to keep going and going there. I just you know, <laughs> waiting for you to finish. That's good. Basically, you're saying women have. Okay, do you realize that's it's no, it's a it's a fat. Okay, hold on. Now I'm going to keep talking. It is an actual. It is a an actual documented fact that women have more words than men in a day that they have to get out. And you guys are saving my husband some grief this evening. So. <laughs> We're glad to do that. Howard, I have nothing to any, say. Any, no. party, any parting thoughts? Well, I was going to say that, you know, I think the most important part of an MRI actually happens before the MRI. And it's two parts. One is all that safety screening and preparation. The other is on more on the doc side uh, that we get the protocol right and make sure it's going to answer the question because it's a safety issue if you're not prepared, you don't know what the question is, and you're fumbling around in the middle of the exam trying to figure out what, what to do next. And so crafting a protocol that hopefully can be done start to finish without question from the technologist so they can just keep moving. And uh, on the technical side, making absolutely sure uh, we do these multiple stops to check, uh, then you've got an exam that's safe and it's going to answer the question. Excellent. I, and I have my last parting thought here was something that I meant to address back when we were talking about non-personnel screening, but I'll just throw this in here at the end. Um, you know, we were talking about the importance of documented screening of non-MRI personnel, uh, but there are occasions where uh, somebody is going to maybe say, I don't really want to fill out that screening form or I don't want to I don't want to be answering these questions because this is none of your business. I mean, they may even throw up HIPAA, which I'm not sure anybody really knows what that means anyway um, or what all it entails. But, you know, I can you know, I know of people who have said, uh, you know, we've heard tech say, well, you know, we fight with HR all the time because other people, nursing personnel, respiratory, whoever, complain about having to fill out this personal information. Well, it's about safety. And at least in, in where, you know, in my experience with managing an MR, if, if somebody doesn't want to fill out a form, that's fine. They just can't come in. Um, but if you've got, if you're getting any pressure about this, then you need your medical director to intervene and to Howard's point, get administration on board that this is about safety. And, uh, it, it could be, it could be very problematic, if not catastrophic to somebody, if, if we're not allowed to, uh, MR safety screen them. So uh, that that was my last thing. It seemed like there was something else that came to mind, but it's gone now. I, so I uh, have uh, the definition of a HIPAA is it's a large water dwelling mammal with birds on its back. <laughs> <laughs> I believe, wasn't that what you were looking for a minute ago? Yeah, yeah, I'm, that's it. That's, okay, that's about what it's that's about what it's worth. You know, oh, something else came up really, and I'll let then I'll leave this with you. Some. Some techs tell me they they work as they work at sites where they for people coming down from the floor, patients coming from the floor, we want them in gowns with no snaps. And this one tech at the, in the class that we were doing said, you know, well that's a problem at their site. They keep pushing back and they refuse to do it, and they send them down with snaps on their gowns, and they don't. You know, MR gets tired of trying to change them and stuff. And I said, well, I'd fix that problem. What I would do is I'd get some scissors and I would cut the snaps off the gown. I'd roll the patient up, cut the snaps off, 
then send them back to the floor with gowns with the snaps cut off. And then when somebody complains, I'd say, you know, if you put them in a gown without snaps, I'll quit cutting them off. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's a great thing. I know that I've been cut off word wise, but I'm going to say this. Um, there was one facility we worked with several, several times. And um, you, you talked about administration um, earlier, Howard, and I think it's important for these technologists to feel empowered. They own zone when someone comes into zone three that that's their that's their turf and everyone everyone needs to do that and so this facility was going to the entire hospital was going to have um gowns without snaps and the technologists were empowered that if anyone showed up with a gown with snaps on it then they um would change the patient and then they immediately threw away that gown and I think that the technologists, they own their area. If a doctor is screaming at me about a child going to the OR, it doesn't matter. He's not coming back. I'm empowered where I'm at that they're not going to come back until I screen them. Um, I think that th that, that was the, one of the first statements you made is that, you know, they own that area. That is their turf. And nothing should happen that would create any type of safety risk. Um, on their watch while they're back there. And, and I know that you give them the backing, but I think a lot of times technologists feel as though they are not supported as well as they would like from administration. So I, I liked what you said in the beginning Thank before you. you started making fun of me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we're out of time here. We really want to thank you and we want to, for listening and we want to thank uh, Brocco for their uh, generous unrestricted educational grant supports uh, these pods, this series of podcasts that we're doing. I want to thank uh, Kristen and Howard, both of y'all. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to do this. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, thank Kristen. Thank you, William. Thank you, Dr. Right. Raleigh. <laughs> always, always a pleasure. Okay, folks, thank you very much again for listening to it. We've got to get out of here and, and everybody out there, have a pleasant rest of your day unless you've got other plans. We're gone. You're just going to have to get over it. See you next time. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Brocco Diagnostics. Thank you.